The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I just turned the microphone on. <laughs> Okay, well, you know, I was so careful to make sure I got this microphone over my ear because I have all these other things in the way of the microphone. Okay, well, now, so we're talking about impermanence today. Anika, the absence of constancy. Especially at our busiest, we, we learn for control. We yearn for control. When everything is really frantic, the first thing we want to do is get our arms around it, right? We want to stop it in place. We want to hold it there so that we can handle whatever is happening. This whole idea of something falling away just doesn't seem too attractive, right? We have these ideas. I am good in a crisis. I am not good in a crisis. We attach ideas to who we are and how we are when we deal with things are changing. The mind actually tries to create the idea of permanence and stability. This is who I am. I know who I am. I do this. This is the way I am. How often do you hear yourself say, well, this is the way I am? That's, that's really an attempt to freeze something in place. Having recently done a bit of traveling, I actually went on a road trip, okay? It's, it's about a... a 14-day road trip. We've, we traveled to Phoenix and over to Santa Fe and up through Colorado and out through Utah. It was really a gorgeous trip. All of that traveling, all of those miles meant new people, new places, different beds. You know, and when I was much younger, that was much more exciting than it is now. I still like meeting the new people and seeing the new things and experiencing new things, but that new bed every night really is not my favorite thing. As I've gotten old and cranky, I like being in my bed, which I can predict, right? I know what it's, yeah, right. Mostly it's a certain way, right? And I can get more sleep that way. At the, when we got back, I watched my mind settle into the beauty of sameness. Oh, yeah. This is where I get my coffee in the morning. This is where I get, this is my bed. This is, everything seems so familiar. And at the same time, my mind was looking for, on the guard, on the, the lookout for what's not the same, what might not be the same, what's not safe. And for the first week, every morning I woke up and I had dreams about the travel wasn't going right and the luggage was lost and, you know, all those dreams where things are going wrong, arrangements, uncertainties. Because when you wake, when I wake up in the morning, there's a certain vulnerability. I just wake up to whatever is there. Oh, it could be anything. It could be anything. It's the lesson of impermanence, actually. This is what now feels like. This is what now feels like. Doesn't matter what you would like it to be, what I would like it to be. This is what now feels like. That's actually a hard thing to get your head around. It's a hard thing to, to open yourself up to. Because it takes a certain amount of vulnerability to just let whatever is in the room be in the room in the room. So then we come to the subject of loss, which is actually what we're going to cover today. So loss. Everybody in this room has experienced loss. There are many kinds of loss. I'm going to list some of them. Sometimes, some, basically it's something that was here that is no longer here, something that was true that is no longer true. Something we saw as ours is no longer ours. A person or being who was always there is no longer here. Something precious has been misplaced, broken, stolen, 
Something beautiful has become ugly. Something new and young has become old and tattered. Something vibrant has deadened. Excitement has become boredom. Good health has declined into infirmity. A good reputation has been sullied. Friends and family move away. We can no longer drive. Our new car gets a dent. We no longer remember names or events or how I got here. We get fired, laid off. Our computer crashes in the middle of a deadline. We spill coffee down the front of our shirt, which happened to my husband this morning. I had to laugh because it was here. We get divorced. There's a loss of meaning in life. Somehow I've lost my way in the world. Our investments fail. Our house burns. Our insurance is canceled. Our business fails. There's a loss of innocence, of optimism. Hearing and sight go in someone who's a bird watcher. Removing delight, loss of limbs in the violence of war. Normally, when we think about losses, we think about things that are sad. We think about these are things over which I can grieve, over which I'm angry. Depending on how we see ourselves, things that we lost change how we see ourselves. How tightly we cling to things determines how much it hurts. How tightly do you cling to what you want, own, need? Yes, even need. How tightly do you cling to that? How do we judge ourselves? What does it feel like to not be in control? I'm, uh, one of the things I do is uh, mentor people around the world who take an online introduction to mindfulness meditation course. And the people that I'm working with now, some of them have been meditating for 30 years, and some are absolute beginners. But almost everyone has expressed to me I'm not good enough. In some form or another, I have this feeling I am not good enough because <laughs> there are all these reasons. Loss tends to be about things that we don't want to be true. We don't want this to be true. Oh, I've, I used to be able to meditate, but now I can't anymore. Why can't I? Or you know, this, this experience hasn't happened in so long, I must be doing something wrong. We start, when we experience loss, we start to think, oh, I have to do something about this. I have to do something about this. This is what now feels like. You know, there was a, an earthquake here in 1989, which is, I realize is getting further and further away. But here it was a pretty big deal, and it was a pretty big deal in my life. My husband and I were uh, dating, but we lived in different parts of the Bay Area. And at the time of the earthquake, he had his kids, and he was on the peninsula, and I was in Berkeley. So we were quite scattered. And our experience of the earthquake was totally different because... He was right where he was. He had his kids with him. He, was, he was, didn't turn on the radio or the television. and He was just focusing on, even though his feeling, his physical experience of the earthquake was much greater, the fear and vulnerability that I experienced was much greater because I was watching television and I watched the freeway crash, a section that I often drove at that time of day just not that day. And I watched the buildings crushing in San Francisco and, and coming into flames. I felt very, very vulnerable. I was scared. 
because I was not only thinking about what had happened, but what could happen. I was experiencing loss in the future that didn't even exist. What if I can't get over to them? I lived alone. Oh my goodness, what happens? I moved a futon down to the front door and slept on the futon at the front door so I could run out, you know? How experienced with loss are you? The loss of a feeling of safety. The loss of feeling like you know where you stand. Do you allow yourself to feel it? There was an article in the New York Times this, uh, in the last few days, uh, an op-ed piece written by Oliver Sacks. Some of you may know him. He was a, a prominent writer, neurologist, and he is dying of uh, uh, liver cancer, terminal liver cancer. And in this article, he wrote about, uh, I'm just going to read it to you. I've tended since early boyhood to deal with loss, losing people dear to me by turning to the non-human. When I was sent away to a boarding school as a child of six at the outset of the Second World War, numbers became my friend. When I returned to London at 10, the elements in the periodic table became my companions. Times of stress throughout my life had led me to turn or return to the physical sciences, a world where there is no life and no death. And now, at this juncture, when death is no longer an abstract concept but a presence and all too close, not to be denied presence, I am again surrounding myself as I did when I was a boy with metals and minerals, little emblems of eternity. Now, to be fair to Dr. Sachs, he definitely isn't talking about avoiding death. But he's saying he is focusing on these things that mark my life. These things. Oh, I can point to this thing. This, this corresponds to when I was 81. This one corresponds to when I was 50. And it's a way of saying, this too is true. This too is true. There was another, another article called Replacing the Irreplaceable that was written by a woman named Liz Rosenberg. And she was speaking about the death of her husband, the sudden death of her husband, relatively young man, no apparent reason that he might be dying, and overnight he was gone. Her previous husband had died in a motorcycle accident. And what she noticed is that she wanted to replace these people, that she, was, that she had a tendency to want to replace them with another person, with something that reminded them of that, her, her of them. She said, the danger increases when we try to replace the irreplaceable with something outside ourselves, whether alcohol or pills to cover an abyss with a trance, or a new belief system, another trance, or some other person who resembles the beloved, ditto. This figure need not be the same age or gender of the absent one as long as he or she possesses qualities that distinctly remind one of the dead. If you think you have found your lost beloved, run. What you have found is a mirage. It may get you partway through the desert, but the closer you get, the more likely it is to disappear as a phantasm. And there you are in the middle of the desert. You know, one of the things that happens with loss is we don't really want it. Eh, I don't want loss. <laughs> it's not what I want. And so we develop a whole series of coping strategies. You know, when in, in the case this woman had talked about where there was sudden death, it's like you don't get to you don't get the you don't get to work up to it. But you know, the end of something is the end of something. When someone dies there is breath and then there is no breath. Every ending is sudden. As in end. 
how do we get our arms around that? The one thing that characterizes loss is the absence of something. The absence of something. The absence of your good name, the absence of your income, the absence of a person that you love, the absence of a physical thing that makes your life pleasant, joyful. There's an absence. We, we had tree work done in our yard recently, and there was a, a tree was missing. It was just gone out of my view. It was the tree that I had been used to was gone. And another one was trimmed, and it looked very strange. And I realized that I kept reimposing the former image on what was there. And when I realized that's what I was doing, I stopped reimposing, reimposing the same image and tried to see just what was there. And it changed from unpleasant to pleasant. It wasn't that I let go of those things that were missing. It's that I noticed, you know, they're, they're not there. What is there? What is there? The ability to see what is there instead of what is missing is a step into understanding impermanence. It's a step into dealing with impermanence. There are lots of um, there are lots of examples that people have of loss, and and uh, I've lost a lot of friends in my life. I've lost family members. We all have. I've been fired. I have a large variety of experiences. I've lost money. <laughs> I'm conscious of a lot of reactions. Anger, anger, rage, anger at injustice, grief, replacement therapy, addiction, distraction. Throw yourself into your work. Throw yourself into your hobbies. Delusion. Ignoring it. Doesn't bother me, really. Remoteness. Stoicism. Do something. As a doer, I always want to do something when something's missing. Essentially, we feel vulnerable and not in control. We may have a sense of betrayal, a loss of intimacy, a loss of continuity, a loss of a dream. What happens is there's a kind of review and we start trying to give it meaning. We establish meaning around something that's lost. Oh, nothing will ever be the same. It'll always be this way. This happened because I didn't do the right thing. This happened because... All of that is a kind of replacement therapy. It's a way of trying to put something back where it was. Trying to put that tree back into the landscape by coming up with all these reasons why it might have happened, could have happened, shouldn't have happened, it's really trying to put the tree back. We're no longer who we thought we were. No longer who we thought we were. There are lots of ways of experiencing that. When I got fired, it was the first time I had really majorly failed. And I have to tell you, it destroyed who I thought I was. Really destroyed who I thought I was. And I noticed how often people walked around saying, this is what I do for a living. (laughs) Hmm, really, is that who you were? Because that's who I was. You know? What is the meaning of this? Losing your place in the material world. 
with a clear experience of what is in this moment, we can be open to experience as it happens and not so much immune to it or wishing it away or trying to control it, not adding to whatever the sadness is associated with loss. At the same time, if sadness is present, sadness is here. Grief. Embarrassment. That's what's here in the room. When we're not trying to make it into something else, it's actually pretty clear. It's a clarity of seeing this is, this is what now is like. This is what now is like. And no, it's not like it was before. And I certainly don't know what it's going to be like in the next moment. We don't actually know. We can have a certain amount of equanimity about that. Yes, it's changed. And no, I don't know what's going to happen next. Sometimes that's scary. So it's easier to say, oh, I know what's going to happen next, even if it's bad, right? At least... If there's a feeling of, of, okay, I know, but we actually don't know. So how do we come, how do we become familiar with that? I don't know what's going to come next. How can that, how can that ever be okay? How can I do that? The trick is not to get stuck in believing what we know is true, what the meaning of whatever this loss is. It turns out there are some losses we actually like, and there's something to be gained from that. So, when there's sadness... Sadness does not have to be the only thing that is here. There can be sweetness with the sadness. There can be a realization. I recently lost my dog. She was a companion for 13 years, and I miss her a lot. I was used to taking care of her. I've never lived in this house before without her. She was always there. And sometimes I'm overwhelmed with sadness that she's not there anymore. And sometimes I realize what a gift it was that I can feel so strongly about this being. How sweet that is. How sweet that is. Things coexist. It doesn't have to just be one thing. This is actually the beauty of seeing it just as it is. I'm going to read you a poem by Jane Hirschfeld. It's called One Sand Grain Among the Others in Winter Wind. One Sand Grain Among the Others in Winter Wind. I wake with my hand held over the place of grief in my body, Depend on nothing, the voice advises, but even that is useless. My ears are useless, my familiar and intimate tongue, my protecting hand is useless, that wants to hold the single leaf to the tree and say, not this one, this one will be saved. We really, we really don't want to believe in impermanence. Becoming familiar with loss develops our relationship with loss. It lets us know how our mind tends to move when we lose something. What, what are your tendencies when you lose something? Start with something small. Don't start in the middle of a trauma and try to become equanimous. It's pretty hopeless. Too big, not kind, not timely. Notice endings and disappearances. Just notice them. The concert ends. Notice it's over. When I first started meditating, 
uh, I sat with Joan Halifax, and she has a way of ending every sitting. She puts her hands together, and she offers uh, merit of the, of the sitting. And then she says, when you do that, when you're finished, notice that you're moving your hands apart and that that's the end of the sitting. Notice the end. We're so used to the continuity of something that we don't notice endings because it seems a little scary to notice endings. Or it seems something for you. I don't know what it is for you. Notice endings. People leave. Concerts end. Notice when the tea becomes cold. Not, oh, it's cold, but, oh, the tea is cold. It's changed. Practice renunciation. Give away something you love, something you don't really need anymore, but something you love. See what it feels like. Notice what happens. Notice what happens. Study natural events. That's an easy one. You know, watch the grass change. Watch the trees change. Watch the leaves change. Watch the clouds move. Notice that they're changing pretty much all the time. It isn't all that sudden. They're changing all the time. Don't be afraid of being around people who die or pets who die. It's a very natural thing. Notice the end of the cup of coffee. Oh, it's empty. It's not there anymore. Notice the changing light as the day changes, the changing moods. Notice the energy you meet each moment with. Notice when the cup is empty. Do you have an urge to do something about it? Is it discarded now? What does your mind do when something ends? Practice losing things. What have you lost lately? I routinely lose my keys, so that doesn't count. Have you lost something lately? What did you feel about it? On this road trip, I brought along my favorite new hairdryer, which I dropped and broke early in the trip. No, I didn't bring my old sort of rickety one. No, I brought my new one that broke and was just totally, that's it, it was gone. Wouldn't work anymore. And I noticed my mind going, oh, Maria, you should have been more careful. You should have taken your other hairdryer. You should have, I had all these things about what I should have done to have prevented something that just happened. It wasn't really negligence on my part. It was the marble floor. Who puts a marble floor in a bathroom? Well, it turns out a lot of people do. (laughs) Or something else, yeah. And I watched my mind get very agitated around this hairdryer. It's just a hairdryer. I have... um, at home, uh, uh, a piece of calligraphy. I'm sure I've mentioned this before. And the, the piece of calligraphy says, this glass is already broken, and so I enjoy it immensely. And I keep it in a glass cabinet where I have some fancy glasses that were given to me. Because I realized that shortly after I got them, they started breaking, and, and that it was traumatic for me every time one of them broke. So So I started pointing to that sign every time one broke. And you know, I am not the least bit sensitive to broken glass at this point. They they just break. You know, that's the nature of glasses and hard surfaces. Boom, they're gone. And I'm astounded at how little tweaking occurs whenever glass is broken in my kitchen. Just unlike the hairdryer, which I wasn't used to, glasses, you know, glass is already broken. The experience of noticing that leads to resilience, leads to the ability to be with loss of any kind. 
Yesterday, I had a conversation with my sister about my mother, who is 94. She sold her car, finally, last month. She's having to give up a lot of things that she doesn't want to give up. She's experiencing loss in a major way. And we, we have moved her to a senior facility where there are lots of support services to take care of her. But to fund this, she has to sell her house, which she hasn't actually lived in for two years. But yesterday she announced she wasn't going to sell the house. She was going to move back to it, and she was going to hire a caregiver, you know, just a couple hours a week. Okay. What I experienced from this was a loss of resolution of a problem. (laughs) I thought it had been settled. We were going forward. She put the house on the market. Everything was happening, and then suddenly it was not anymore. I noticed anger. I noticed my heart pumping. I noticed despair. And it lasted about 15 minutes. I'm still sad about it. But the reaction of, this can't be happening, is gone. It was quick. It isn't that it didn't arise. It's that it just didn't stay. It didn't, it didn't occupy me. It didn't grab me and hold me forever, as it may have in the past. It takes practice. It takes practice. And I practice with things like the tea is getting cooler and the glasses break. I don't want to minimize the importance of deep loss, only that there are all kinds of loss. There's loss of despair. There's loss of anger. We're talking now about absence of something that was there. There's loss of doubt. There's loss of uncertainty. These are also losses. And they arise out of just being with what is here right now. What's right here? Ajahn Chah had this to say about an agitated mind. He said, within itself, the mind is already peaceful. And isn't this what we really want? That the mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows moods. It becomes agitated because moods deceive it. The untrained mind is stupid. Sense impressions come and trick it into unhappiness, suffering, gladness, and sorrow. But the mind's true nature is none of these things. Gladness or sadness is not the mind but only a mood coming to deceive us. The untrained mind gets lost and follows these things. It forgets itself. Then we think that it is we who are upset or at ease or whatever. But really, this mind of ours is already unmoving and peaceful, really peaceful. So we must train the mind to know these sense impressions and not to get lost in them. Just this is the aim of all the difficult practice we put ourselves through. Just this. Ah, when you know something, you can't unknow it, even in a crisis. Even when it seems massive. Because change is constant. Impermanence is constant. It keeps happening. We just don't know how. How can we become familiar with change so that when we experience loss that is unpleasant to us, we don't become unrailed? We don't try to deny whatever the feelings are that arise with that loss. And we don't build them into something extra. We don't build them into something else that they're not. Because we become familiar with impermanence. Oh. Oh. This. Oh. 
This arises, is present, and passes away. Impermanence is a process, not a thing. I am in process. That's what change means. That's what impermanence means. This is all a process. Here's what shows up now. This is who shows up now. I'm going to close with a little quote from Wistava Simborska, who's one of my favorite poets. She said, Nothing can ever happen twice. In consequence, the sorry fact is that we arrive here improvised and leave without the chance to practice. That's it. Nothing can ever happen twice. In consequence, the sorry fact is that we arrive here improvised and leave without the chance to practice. This is it, right here. This is what now feels like. Thank you. So, I invite some discussion around the idea of loss arguments, observations, what moves you. Okay. You know how to turn these on? Yeah. Thank you. I found my, early in your talk, I found myself clinging to impermanence. (laughs) That is to say, you know, I was going to get this concept and hang on to it so that when I needed it, (laughs) it would work for me. Yes. Only it doesn't work that way. (laughs) I'm slowly learning. Um, And I don't know what it was that prompted that insight of, you know, where it doesn't work that way. Uh, not exactly. I mean, the, the content is valuable, but if I try to cling to it as I was, then I'm only doing in reverse what I usually do, which is cling to those things that I want to really want to hang on to. That's all I have to say. I thought that was interesting. That was an interesting experience for me. Yeah, great. I'm happy that you called it an experience also. You know, uh, because that's what it is, an experience. One of the reasons that I'm doing a series on impermanence is to, to help me remember and experience impermanence. I have one other thought, which just came into my head. Uh, The best writing I have ever read on dealing with change, which is in some ways the same idea, is from your Marin County neighbor, William Bridges, who wrote a book on transitions, making sense of life's changes. It's a great read. It's still available. Thank you. And this gentleman here. Um, I had a question about meditation Mm -hmm. and impermanence. Mm -hmm. Um, For instance, in terms of losing your puppy dog. In terms of using? Of losing your puppy dog. Yes. I mean, to my mind, puppies are the Buddhist ideal. They don't live in the past. They don't live in the future. They're always happy even when they're in pain. (laughs) Yes. So... They're perfect, I understand. Did you um, bring something to your meditation practice when you had that loss? Did I bring something to my meditation practice when I had that loss? Or used, uh, adapted, or changed your meditation practice to get through that? No, I didn't change my practice and I'm not through that. Um, what I have mostly done has to do with 
observing my, being mindful of my attitudes and minds, uh, moods and emotions when I'm not on the cushion with respect to the loss. So I notice when I am, I notice that every night before I go to bed, I look for her, even though I know she's not there. I notice that, and I notice what's going on with that. What else is here besides noticing that she's gone? I notice uh, things like how firmly habits have become installed around something that isn't even there. I notice that. And I notice the loss of uh, my desire to take care of something, someone, some being. And I notice that it's a feeling like my hands are reaching out and empty. Like there's nothing to hold, to grab, to, to caress. That, that I, I notice that my hands are missing that. So it becomes more a matter of studying how I'm meeting the moment, each moment, as opposed to what happens when I meditate. Um, yeah. Okay. And behind you, you... Mm-hmm. You got to press hard. Yeah. Um, yeah. It 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 sometimes seems like you can say that if what you want is impermanent, then maybe the desire for it is is kind of an illusion. But there there's some losses that just strike closer to home than others. I mean, it just does. See, it just seems to me that the loss of a hairdryer and the loss of a dog are just fundamentally different. And I, I think I've gotten to the point where I can cope with the breaking of a uh, brand new hairdryer. Um, but the, the loss of a dog, this is, this is uh, something that's like a fixture within your own home, uh, where you live. It's, it's part of your media environment, and that's, uh, for me, um, harder, uh, a much bigger leap to develop an, an equanimity around that than um, the loss of a hairdryer. It's just, and so I'm, um, I, I'm finding that the sort of meditation techniques that help me to deal with the one type don't, aren't, haven't got me through the other, other yet. <laughs> you know, um, there, there is a tendency to think that there's a, a place where we get where we can just handle everything, right? That if I were good enough, I would be equanimous. And the, the, the only virtue of the hairdryer example is to notice the movement of my mind and what my mind habits are. When, when I am suffering from a great sorrow, along with those movements of the mind, I don't always notice that, oh, this is me trying to replace something, that this sadness, I'm adding to my suffering by the movement of my mind. But if I'm used to seeing that trick, oh, there's that trick, Maria's doing that trick, then I'm more likely to notice it even in the depths of my sorrow and be able to not add to my suffering. So it isn't that they're comparable in how they affect me. It's simply not true. But the, the ability to become familiar with loss and the habit of noticing this is what's happening now is a remembered thing. It's, it's like when I sit down to meditate, I, I sit down like this, and I have a feeling of, ah, oh, I'm on my cushion. And my attitude changes when I sit on the, this cushion because I have a body memory of meditating that is comfortable, and I settle into it, and it helps me settle. 
The same is true for anything that you notice that you are mindful of when, as you go through your day. There, there, there are lots of things that I notice that are triggers for me, and I go, oh, look at that, that I wasn't conscious of a year ago. And so I'm less likely to be caught by something. That's the only thing. It's just a practice because it becomes more a habit to say, oh, what's, what's really happening now? What's really happening now? Especially when I feel overwhelmed with emotion, that, that happens. So one day last week, uh, shortly after we got back from this road trip, my husband went off and went fishing. And I thought, oh, goody, I have a whole day to myself at home. And, and the next thing I know, I was overwhelmed with sadness. Maybe it was about the dog. Maybe it was about something else. But all of a sudden, overwhelmed with sadness. And I said, okay, so what does it mean that I'm overwhelmed with sadness? This isn't supposed to be happening now. I'm supposed to be enjoying my day. And, and so I looked at the feeling in my belly said, okay, there's this unsettled feeling in my belly. Okay, I'm unsettled. I'm unsettled. Maybe it isn't even sadness. I'm just unsettled. I have residual agitation left over from all the uncertainty of that trip and dealing with coming back and getting things restarted. And I'm unsettled. Oh, well, that's interesting. I wasn't actually sad. There was, there was some sadness there, but it wasn't the overwhelming thing. The overwhelming thing was, I was just feeling unsettled. And I sat down. I did something about the unsettledness of me. It's a way of, of getting in the habit of asking, what's happening? This is what now feels like. I didn't push away sadness, but I didn't let it take over my day. There was this sadness. Okay, there's sadness. I was weary. Oh, I'm weary. I didn't have to know why. It wasn't a psychological trauma that I needed to resolve. Right? Just, oh, this is what's happening. I needed to call it by its real name and not decide too soon what it was. And I had to leave room for it to change because it did change. That whole day, it changed through all of the activities of the day. It didn't stay unsettled. It didn't stay sad. It didn't say anything. But being in the habit of noticing the sadness and saying, okay, I gotta, what else is here? allowed me to be more open and more vulnerable to what else came up. Yeah, back in the back. So I'm curious, is this on? Yes. Yes. So I'm curious what it is when we cling to our sadness, really cling. And I'm, in, and I'm thinking about, uh, um, let's see, I've been in this practice for several years, and I know I have changed. And in the process, I've lost two very good friends that just, I don't know, paths change something, but I still am very sad at the loss, and the, the losses. For one has been three years, and the other has been one year. And I'm, I'm grieving f- for my friends, but it just, we were just on different paths. I just don't know what, uh, um, anyway, that's, I don't understand that. I've had the same experience. So I don't know that I feel the same way you feel, but it is familiar to me, this loss of people by choices that I have made. And um, I, for one, am not someone who believes that grief is bad. Uh, And I also believe that grief can be clung to, sometimes because what we're clinging to is a memory 
sometimes there's a sense of uh, guilt, some kind of guilt, like I should have been able to do something. Sometimes it's, uh, I have a strong sense of loyalty. I tend to put a lot of uh, emphasis on loyalty. So when somebody moves out of my life, I feel like I've been disloyal. <laughs> no? And so I look at that and say, oh, disloyal. Hmm. Sure, I'm attached to that idea of disloyal. The grieving, I don't know the depth of, the, of grieving, and I don't know how it manifests in your life. It may be related to seeing that tree that is no longer there. And that what is called for now is to see what is there. Just what is there. And stop looking for the tree. Try not to replace the tree. Because we we get stuck in places that are really important to us for some reason or another. It's not so much important to know why they're important to us, but to really study what our reaction is. Are we holding on to something? Are we trying to recreate something? Are we trying to reimagine something? Oh, hmm. is that useful? Is that useful? When, when we lose people who are close to us, whether through accident or anger or dislocation, there, there is a loss of intimacy. And we're, we're very reluctant to give up that intimacy. And we tend to put in place something that says, okay, I'm not going to let that happen again. <laughs> See if that's there. See what else is there. And maybe you will always miss those people. And maybe you won't. I don't know if that's helpful. But it, it isn't a deficiency. It's just trying to see what's there. So we need to close now. Thank you all very much. May all your losses be joyful ones. It's possible. <laughs> Bye.